0: This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. Thank you
1: for trying to save our party. And Dr. Kavita Patel. A strong Republican party is exactly what any democracy needs. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms, which are ever closer, and what our leaders are saying and doing about them or not saying or not doing about them. Today, we have an incredibly special friend slash guest slash savant of all things that are relevant in policy and politics, E.J. Dionne of the Brookings Institution, one of my former colleagues, as well as an incredible columnist at The Washington Post. And I think Norm and I wanted to actually bring you on, not only because, one, we love talking to you, but two, also one of your columns, which uh, posted online at The Washington Post yesterday was just a great summation of, I think, how uh, at least Norm and I have been talking through things. So, Norm, I hope you're doing well and thinking about Tuesday, November 8th. And and EJ, always great to see you.
2: What would a joy to be to. with two of my favorite people. So thank you. <laughs> honest, and, honest and true.
1: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Not often we can say that, right? That's how
0: we all feel, too. EJ, just talk a little bit about that column, and then we can... <laughs> work it through with uh, our own observations and play off of it.
2: Well, you thank you so much for what you said about the column and all those other kind words. And I really do love you guys. I wrote that column in part because I've been thinking a lot about how we sound, those of us who are critical of the Republican Party, of this version of the Republican Party, uh, and the election denial and the conspiracy mongering and the QAnon-ness. And We forget about just how wacky the QAnon conspiracy is and how widespread, uh, you know, about a quarter of the Republican Party, according to a PRI Brookings poll, uh, accepts this. This is really troubling. Um, This does not mean, I think, that any of us, including the three of us here on this call, have always felt that way about the Republican Party or think that, you know, there's nothing honorable in its history. On the contrary, there's a lot honorable in the Republican Party's history that the party is walking away from. So before I get to the front end, I want to get to the back end. I suppose partly in honor of where I happen to be sitting, because I was included on a great panel last night at West Point. There's a conference West Point runs for students around the country and just to show I'm getting really old I attended this conference as a student 50 years ago and so it was so much fun to be here with the uh, with the cadets and the students from all over the country as part of a very good and politically diverse panel and I quoted in the column one of my favorite Republican presidents West Point grad class of 2015 Dwight D Eisenhower a lot of people know the farewell address that um, Eisenhower gave because he criticized the military industrial complex. And I looked up at the audience when I said that last night and I said, it's good to know we have free speech in America. And I can even say that at West Point, those words, but by a West Point grab. But what we forget is the part where he talked about government as an exercise in balance, smart, democratic government. And he said that that was the nation's need. And then here are the balances he talked about. Balance between the private and the public economy. Balance between cost and hope for advantage. Balance between, this is, I like this phrase, the clearly necessary and the comfortably desirable. We've got to think about that in our own budgets. Balance between our essential requirements as a nation and the duties imposed by the nation upon the individual. Balance between action of the moment and the national welfare of the future, and I argue that that's a tradition that the Republican Party could appeal back to and could try to live up to. But instead, we have this conspiracy mongering. And I'll, I'll just just quote this, and we can open the conversation. But I guess every time former President Trump says something, you know, even though you say, "Oh, he can't," you know, he can't top X or Y. Um, Here he was inventing a conspiracy theory about the beating of Paul Pelosi, where he went on a conservative show and said, where are are going on in that household in the last couple of weeks? And basically saying the the guy was trying to escape. So it wasn't a break in, it was a breakout. I mean, it was all nonsense. It was all lies. And what I argued in the piece is that while there were, bless them, Republicans who genuinely empathized with Nancy Pelosi and Condemned it, you know, including Mitch McConnell, I argued that you know, sorry guys, I think that's good, but it's not enough. you've got to break with the man who is spreading this awful nonsense. And in a lot of ways the the most disturbing thing about a Republican victory next Tuesday, if that were to happen, is not just the policy stuff that many of us all three of us probably disagree with. Uh, it's that the party will not have paid a price at all, it would appear, if that's the outcome, we don't know yet, for not being willing to break with Donald Trump and the conspiracists. And I really do think that's on the ballot. It relates to what some of what President Biden was talking about. But I think we as a country, we got to walk away from that. And that means the Republican Party has to walk away from
1: that.
0: It's spot on. Um, I want to just offer a few observations that play off of what you said. The first is when Tom Mann and I wrote, It's Even Worse Than It Looks. I got a lot of pushback from Republicans in office that we had betrayed them because that was the last message that they wanted out there, that the problem was the Republican Party. But I got a lot of feedback from former Republican office holders saying, Thank you for trying to save our party. Because what you said, EJ, is a fundamental here. We do not exist as a democracy if we don't have two problem solving parties in competition with each other within the boundaries of the legitimacy of a democratic small d political system. And we've lost that. And we were losing it a decade and a half ago. We were losing it a decade ago. And now it's hard to imagine a set of circumstances where in the short run, we get it back. My hope has been, I sort of have always believed in the rule of three, that if a party loses three elections in a row, they are forced to change. The first time it's, oh my God, how could we have nominated that doofus? The second time it's, duh, we did it again. By the third time, there's a recognition that something's wrong. And if they win, as you said, they're going to believe that everything that they've done is legitimized that it works and what stunned me so much about the reaction to Paul Pelosi's attack and what was we now know clearly an effort that could easily have led to the assassination of Nancy Pelosi this guy was not just going to bust her kneecaps he was prepared to die in the service of weird conspiracies from the right and we know that we've had these vicious attacks on Pelosi for more than a decade that helped to lead up to this. There was uh, you know, Mitch McConnell condemned the violence. I saw a bunch of things on Twitter uh, that Rick Scott, who was on Face the Nation, had condemned it. But what Rick Scott did was to say, yes, this is terrible. All violence is terrible. But the left is as responsible as the right. And then we had nothing from Kevin McCarthy. Nothing from other leaders. You might have expected that Steve Scalise, who was shot in a deranged attack, would offer some sympathy, because after all, when Steve Scalise was shot, Nancy Pelosi said, "This is a family. We're all in the family." Condemned it. Nothing. Crickets. And this is a glorification of violence, a a a willingness to play up weird conspiracy theories that takes us out of the realm of anything that's legitimate in a political system. And it's just hard to imagine how we get out of it, even if we somehow manage to hold on to at least some of the elements, the Senate, some of the governorships on Tuesday.
1: Well, I'd like to kind of add to that. And I just want to start with uh, the title of EJ's, even though it kind of circled around Halloween it's a great title which i failed to read on the top of the show in the midterms gop extremism is the ghoul in the room and it prompted me after reading the column and just listening to you norm it literally it it reminds me of the story of frankenstein the monster i mean the republicans have created essentially the greatest frankenstein that's kind of you know loosely knit together with these bits and pieces of crazy and they're now too scared of said monster to actually take it apart because What would that mean? I mean, they've completely like put themselves to the point. Kevin McCarthy not denouncing something, even even Mitch McConnell, like actually kind of going through and saying, "Well, you know, of course, it doesn't do it. It does nothing to kind of confront that fascism, which requires that very Frankenstein monster to agree, and for these kind of comments from Trump, which you know, in passing, oh, you know, there's some crazy stuff going on there, which then opens. Reminded me of uh, Comet Pizza and, and just this. dish just, just the literally still to this day, what years later, kind of still the like abuse and attacks, and it's it's a decay of what I, I think all three of us would agree, whatever our political ideals, that a strong Republican Party is exactly what any democracy needs, and it doesn't even feel like there's any honor that I can see in in the forefront down the road certainly not Tuesday, November 8th, which is very disturbing when when you think about it. Do we want to kind of apply some of this then to the elections that are coming up and maybe offer our round of thoughts? Go ahead, EJ.
2: I just want to throw for very briefly a small political science curveball into the conversation, if I could, and I don't want us to dwell on it. For a long time, I was, uh, I have been a defender of the two-party system on the idea that a two-party system is more responsive than a multi-party system because voters can throw the bums out easily. Sometimes in coalition governments, uh, you end up with a different coalition, but essentially the same government after an election. And that also in two-party systems, voters know the coalition in advance. There's not ne- you know negotiations in a closed room among parties. You know what you're voting for. I have started to think in recent years because of the takeover, or I think it's a takeover, but certainly the predominance of far-right elements in the Republican Party, we might actually be better with a multi-party system that would hive off the far-right as a separate party. And if you look at what's happened in European countries, yes, you got the problems right now in Italy with a very right-wing government. But on the whole, you know, you've had center-right parties that were quite distinct from the far right parties in Germany, the AFD gets its share of the vote, but the Christian Democrats have remained a, a reasonable center right party. You had elections this week in Denmark where, you know, the Social Democrats did pretty well and the center did pretty well. I wonder if, if we're going to be stuck with a Republican party that looks like this, governing ourselves is going to be very difficult in a two party system. Can I toss that at you, Norm, because I'm curious. I imagine you've been thinking some about this, too.
0: I have. Uh, And of course, you know, I've had a back and forth with uh, our friend Lee Drutman about this, who wants to move to proportional representation. Uh, Of course, we have to start with the reality that there are different systems of proportional representation. And I'm looking with great alarm at what's happening this week in Israel which has, you know, an extreme version. You have to get 3.5% of the votes to have representation in the Knesset, their parliament. But right now, I'm just reading a piece today that Bibi Netanyahu, who it looks like will have enough seats to make a majority, is flirting with an anti-LGBTQ party, even as he's embraced radical anti-Arab extremist parties who are now represented in the Knesset as well. So there are pluses and minuses. What I would like to see in our political system is the, uh, and there's some things that we could do that would move us in, I think, a, a direction where we could incorporate other parties. I think so you're last, going, right going where I forward, am, too. Go ahead.
2: Right Go ahead, choice forward, I think
0: I- And uh, multi-member districts in the House. And if we had ranked choice voting, we could encourage other parties to participate. We could find homes for those people. Now, conservative Republicans, not radical extremist Republicans, don't feel as if they have a place to go. And that's true of some who are, say, pro-life Democrats, although they obviously have seen the Republican Party move to an even greater extreme there. But if you're not going to distort the results of an election, then you could have other parties flourish. And some of those parties ultimately are going to get representation in Congress and possibly in state legislatures. And then you could create those coalitions and maybe have a governing coalition that's a more responsible
2: one. So that more than moving full blown to a, I a, I agree. You know, Just- that's where I have ended up. I've t- I, I've also had conversations with Lee, who's a very interesting guy. And I think that the you know, preference voting transferable vote is the halfway house that can work within our system and produce some of the benefits without going all the way over to proportional representation, because A, it's not going to happen here. Uh, it's constitutionally very difficult. And B, I think this is a more measured approach that can keep you some of the advantages of the two party system, but create some air, give us some room within the system for a, uh, particularly a more moderate politics on the right, which we desperately need right now.
1: I think that- But anyway, I'm sorry, thank you for my- I
2: would
1: would like to have uh, any better system than what we have. I had truly kind of, uh, maybe it's just because of my political science education, really thought yes the two party system but you're right i whether it's preferential multi party i am a little afraid by the way of what a multi party because would would have as an implication we're talking about it as a solution to the republican party i can't help but kind of recall i was canvassing in pennsylvania ej not this past weekend but weekend before and Bucks County, you know, very solid kind of Democrat base, but wanting to make sure people were coming out and voting, as well as some of the new entrants into Bucks County. I can't help but reverberate with just very frank conversations with people who are so disappointed in the Democratic Party, too. So that's not a ba- that's not a reason to not do it. It's just a it's it's a fascinating and probably an important force function for both parties because it's not as if the Democrats. Certainly, they're not condoning violence and this fascism and and a lot of these elements. But there is this disenchantment amongst, I would say, kind of the base of potentially like moderate, especially talking to women and Democrats, people who identify as women who want to really weigh in on the reproductive justice debates, voting rights issues. A lot of like kind of moms, they're very... They put a lot of it at the foot of the Biden administration, which is probably unfair, but it kind of all spills over. So it'd be an interesting, it actually would be like for our country, much like ending daylight savings time, a very exciting conversation <laughs> that I would like to actually <laughs> be taken seriously. So well, the, good thing about that,
2: the good thing about the transferable vote is that you don't, you know, you rank choice one, two, three, four. You don't end up electing the party you hate the most or dislike the most by casting a protest vote. You can cast a protest vote. Sometimes, if enough people do it, that candidate can win. But even if not, you can end up helping elect the candidate you like better of the when it comes down to the final two, and that's an advantage. But I do think this goes back to where we started. One of the troubling things to me about what may happen in this election. Is that the Republicans will be able to play a double game here, which is to get the you know hardcore Trump base out to vote by embracing the radical stuff, but then run campaigns aimed at those very moderate the moderate voters you're talking about, and say, you know, vote on inflation, vote against Biden, send a message kind of campaign. And that'll merge these two votes in many places and produce a Republican victory. But in some cases for a very radical Republican candidate. And so I think that's one of the challenges. And I think the Democrats have not quite been able to put together the punch to sort of uh, yet to knock out the very clear, you could argue demagogic, but a very clear Republican emphasis on inflation, crime, immigration over and over and over again. Some Democrats have managed to do it. It's one of the reasons we'll probably talk later. I, I really admire Tim Ryan's campaign, who's really managed to talk about economics in Ohio in a way that actually appeals to some of the people who voted for Trump. But I, I think that we'll, you know, at the end, we'll we'll see how this campaign worked out. But there's been a relentless, if you don't like it, you'd say a monotonous, but it was but re- repetition works in politics. And there's been a relentless litness about the Republican campaign since September. I'm curious how you guys see it.
0: Uh, Well, one, you're absolutely right. Republicans have consistent messages uh, and Democrats don't. And, you know, to some degree, that reflects another reality about the parties. The Democratic Party, I could argue, has actually been itself a form of proportional representation. It's a coalition of groups, and it's all about negotiating among and between the groups. The Republican Party is more of a unity. They've always had more discipline and messages, and they started believing that they had three issues, the economy generally, inflation, and the border that they could use to excite their own voters and to dominate the conversation. I thought Months ago, when gas prices first spiked, that what uh, Joe Biden should have done then was haul in the CEOs of the top seven oil companies and excoriate them publicly for their excess profits and say that they're responsible for uh, exploiting the war in Ukraine for their own advantage and show that he's fighting, but change the frame of the inflation issue. Now, he did that just this last week, but it was too little too late. And that set of messages has worked better. And at the same time, we'll talk more about Biden's speech on the threats to democracy. The failure to frame this as an important issue for Voters who are on the fence, there may not be that many of them, but they're the critical voters in so many of these House and Senate races to understand the radicalism of the Republican Party, something that has not happened with our mainstream media who are treating this election as just a typical election. And it's all about a horse race. The president has a bully pulpit and he hasn't done that as well as he should have. And that's created, I think, a problem for us because it means that. We have a defensiveness instead of being on the offensive that has hurt in this, uh, uh, in this contest. And if you can't see this framed as democracy on the ballot, uh, not just a slogan, but really get people to understand it, then we're going to have the outcome that I fear we may have, which is not necessarily a red wave but enough to win a House of Congress and maybe win some of these governorships that will be a clear and present threat to the presidential election in 2024, much less the turmoil that we'll get between now and then.
1: All right. I'm going to exert some discipline because the three of us absolutely could spend days to, well, no, this is the uh, this is the makings. Too bad we're recording this uh, early in the morning because this is the kind of thing you need like some good port you know, a nice luxurious chair. And then we could probably keep going for hours as I think, uh, I, I certainly have stayed up nights trying to just think through what's going to happen. And to your point, Norm, what's at stake on this ballot, but it does feel like I say that every ballot, right? I felt that way about every election, by the way, not just since 2016, it's been like this ever since we've had these like razor thin I think for me, it was 2010 and kind of going forward when at least I I was more, I was proximal to a lot of these problems that came when we lost control of the Democratic House. So let me shift to maybe some predictions, a little bit of a a round robin, if you will, of where we think. And and before we started recording, I think, EJ, you did a great job of maybe giving us some predictions from your heart and your mind. And I'm going to copy that. So let me let me see if I can model something, because whether you want to react to my predictions or just offer your own plus react. I would love to see as we're recording literally days before the November 8th kind of people have been casting early votes. I myself did mine. I want to just go through two races and talk about the scenario that I predict could happen. Let me do both Senate races because I think, Norm, maybe we can also touch on someone's prediction around a governor's race that you and I have kept our eyes on, many of them actually. I want to talk about Pennsylvania and Georgia. I do think Fetterman will pull it through in in Pennsylvania. I do think that this is going to be about turnout. I feel like there has been a significant influx, not just of dollars, but also people canvassing, reminiscent of many of the presidential elections. When we know there's a much bigger push and turnout as well, people know what's on the line in Pennsylvania for so many reasons. I think Fetterman will pull it through. I don't think it'll be close enough to be a runoff. That's different than my prediction from my heart about Georgia, which is that I... I do, I really, I want Warnock from my heart to take it over. And then when I apply my brain as a filter, since I'm a doctor and I do that, I am worried this goes to a runoff. And when you look at runoffs in Georgia, we all think about Asaf, but that's not what would happen here because the tradition in Georgia with runoffs is more rooted in kind of the racist way that they run, that their laws handle runoffs. And so it's an incredibly, it's, it's a much more kind of tilted process because it was created in Georgia as a way in the 60s of preserving uh, power in, a, you know, white political power in then a heavily black state. Anyhow, it's something that I worry could end up with a Senator Herschel Walker. So I do feel like that uh, 2021 being different in Georgia is something we should not kind of assume could happen. And that that race is looking, unfortunately, much closer than I would like. All right, I'll stop there with that bad news, or kind of my concern and gray shadow that I just cast. And let's see, let's see, uh, Norm, and then I'll finish with EJ. What do you think? Any any predictions? Heart, mind, both. EJ had
0: this great frame, one from the head and one from the the heart. My one from the heart is that Sherry Beasley wins a Senate seat in North Carolina, and I say that's from the heart because she's clearly been competitive. This is a former chief justice uh, of the Supreme Court in North Carolina running against another one of these radicals, a radical who believes that if a uh, preteen gets raped, that you need to have, just as Dr. Oz said, local officials involved in making decision about whether she gets an abortion. But in North Carolina, we have been so close before, including in 2020 and 2016, and then it just ends up being a narrow Republican victory. So I'm hopeful, but don't think it's all that likely. Another one from the heart I have to give is Evan McMullen in Utah. And that's partly because Mike Lee is an extremist. I actually think Evan McMullen has a chance of prevailing here. This is a Mormon conservative, and Mike Lee has alienated a lot of His own Republicans and the Democrats were smart enough, rare in this case, to not field a candidate. And McMullen would be an independent. That doesn't mean he's going to vote with Democrats all the time, but he would be a dramatic improvement over Mike Lee. From the head, first, I agree with Kavita on Fetterman. I think he is likely to uh, win. I also think that we're going to see Democratic governors in close races in Michigan, and I believe in Wisconsin, who will pull it out. I think we're going to see at least in some of these cases that we will dodge a bullet and not get the crazy Republican victor. I'm a little less certain about it in Arizona, but I think in a lot of states, we're going to dodge that bullet at least. And I think we'll do it as well on Secretary of State races in critical places.
2: Just a couple of comments on what you guys said. One, I'm grateful, Norm, that you mentioned the Sherry Beasley race. I joked I've been traveling the country some during this campaign, and I joked that I was doing my underdog tour because I wrote about Sherry Beasley early because she has been running so close in that state and that Democrats nationally seemed to give up on it when she was within a point or two. And she is very impressive. So I agree with that. On the runoff I think paradoxically, it may end up being the case that if the Democrats don't need Reverend Warnock's seat, they might have it. It might be easier to get it because if the runoff is about who controls the Senate, a lot of Republicans will have an excuse or a reason just to vote for Herschel Walker to control the Senate. Whereas, if actually the Senate isn't at stake, it will free a lot of voters. Republican leaning voters who don't really want to vote for Herschel Walker not to vote for Herschel Walker because it won't matter to control. Uh, just a theory, but we don't know what's going to, you know, we don't know which of those will apply. So, my two from the head and the heart from the head, I think Senator Catherine Cortez Mastow will hold on, Mastow will hold on against a lot of predictions that she's in trouble. She probably, She it's very close. There's not a poll that doesn't show it quite close. I base that on the idea that, number one, I think when you look at an awful lot of polls of Latinos that poll a lot of Latinos, not just some subset of a larger survey, she's tended to do better. And also, and my friend Harold Meyerson at the American Prospect wrote a very interesting piece yesterday, uh, Will the Hotel Workers Union Save the Senate for the Democrats? The Latino community in Nevada is very unionized, and the unions are throwing everything they have. Into that race. And so I think she is, yes, it's hard, but I think she may be in a little bit better shape than people are saying. The one from my heart is the other underdog race I visited, which is Tim Ryan in Ohio. Because, and I think what's happening there is very clear. A Democratic pollster put it very well. There are an awful lot of Republicans who really like Tim Ryan much better than they like J.D. Vance. They find Ryan, an appealing guy, and they don't particularly like Vance, but these same voters don't trust the Democratic Party. And so for Vance, the whole game has been get enough Republicans who don't like him to come over to their side and vote for him to get a Republican or keep uh, get a Republican majority. In general, there's skepticism that Ryan can pull it off in a state that voted for Trump by eight points. But boy, he has run a model campaign. And I think if he wins, you know, what I particularly like is he has managed to appeal simultaneously to kind of suburban moderates who care about democracy and in many cases abortion rights and don't like Republican extremism. But he's also very actively gone after Trump voters. And he said, look, you know, a big chunk of the Trump vote is not gettable because it is extreme. But there are a lot of Trump voters who have really suffered in this economy, who were very angry and voted for Trump to shake things up. And I'm going to try to get some of those votes back for the, because I have concrete things to offer to make their lives better, which Shady Vance doesn't. And boy, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. You know, the, the conventional wisdom is overwhelmingly no way Tim Ryan can win, which would only make it all the more startling and, and have more impact if he can somehow pull this off.
0: Before we end the segment, I want to mention a couple of other things. First, you're right about Tim Ryan, whose focus on the economy has been pitch perfect. So has Barack Obama these last few days. And if Democrats had done a lot of that earlier, uh, they might be in better shape. But I urge our listeners and viewers to just keep an eye on Kansas and Oklahoma. Yes, yes. solidly red states that have really interesting dynamics. J.C. Watts, who was for a long time, you know, he was a star quarterback at the University of Oklahoma, served in Congress, a black Republican conservative, and he still has a following in Oklahoma. He just endorsed the Democratic candidate for governor, saying that the governor, Stitt, has been corrupt and the entire it's time to end the corruption. And she's been running a very competitive race. She may not win, but it'll just be worth watching to see if a red state could move in a different direction. And in Kansas, of course, first of all, we have a couple of house races. Patrick Schmidt running in a competitive district who's actually been endorsed by some prominent Jewish Democrats for whom he worked, even though he's not Jewish himself. But of course, we had that referendum uh, on abortion that showed a dramatic turnaround and a state in Kansas where the ultra-conservatives, Sam Brownback as governor and others, have just devastated the state's education system and economy. There may be a backlash there. It's just worth watching to see if maybe that will provide some bright light looking to the future.
1: Oklahoma and also some of the reminds me that we've got some like races in Texas in the in their state Senate and House that also have some of those interesting similar kind of overtones. Sadly, in that state, I think Beto will lose for his governor's race, which is now it actually is in, interestingly enough, as usually as elections get closer, everything tightens, it's, uh, doing the opposite in Texas. But it is a good reminder that we should probably keep an eye. We'll see how some of our predictions just now perform against Tuesday, or it might take past Tuesday to see how some of this plays out. But also some of these state and local races as well, because too much is on the line at every single level. We've talked about state AGs. We've talked about secretaries of state. There's so many of those races. So we'll hopefully do a be able to kind of run through the list uh, after Tuesday. One
2: quick word about Oklahoma, which I think is really interesting, is that the Democrat is a former Republican. Who cares passionately about education. And it'll be a case, you know, the Republicans abuse the education issue, you know, around critical race theory, which of course isn't actually taught, but also real frustration with the schools during the pandemic. And she just was very concerned about how her old party was treating the education issue, funding and other, other things. And so she is, I, I think if she pulled this off, it really becomes an interesting model that there are middle-of-the-road Republicans who have switched sides to give that ideology a chance inside the Democratic Party. And we'll see. Uh, Yeah, I'm watching that one very closely too, Norm.
1: Well, we'll keep pushing on not only just these predictions, but one race then leads to another as we get closer to 2024. So I think without much more debate today. Let's close out the podcast for our public listeners. And then we'll get into some of the issues we've brought up on Biden's speech on democracy, as well as I'll touch on uh, Obama's speech as well, where he got heckled for some of the similar themes. But in closing us out, I want to thank everyone for joining and listening. And please, please, please add us on your feed of your favorite podcast player. We're on all of them. And we also hope you can share this episode in particular with your friends and you don't have to share it on twitter there's many many places that you can share this and if you like it and want more of the conversation join as a member of the dsr network and access our bonus segment also if you join as a member you'll also get a copy of david rothkoff's excellent book it will come to you free so think of the membership as basically someone paying you money because the value of the book is worth more than the membership cost alone and i think everyone will enjoy it it goes into over 75 interviews with Trump former Trump officials or people incredibly close to the Trump administration talking about the deep state and I will summarize it I'm about a halfway through the book and I will say that it reflects what if it what the worst you think you knew about the Trump administration take a 10x of that and this book gives you insights that I don't think we've seen in many of the kind of books that have been written to date or even some of the officials that have come out publicly and spoken kind of their truth. So I want to have everyone another push for joining us as a member and then thanking our incredible executive producer, Chris Cotmore, and the producer of this show, the ever wonderful Grant Haver. And the next episode will be in your podcast feeds on November 10th. See you then.